Time for the sequel, Independence Day Resurgence. But not just that, the theme of sequels. What is their role in Hollywood? Join us this time on General Snobbery. Made possible with the support of Chris Hankel. This is a podcast. Open the pod bay doors. Hakusherpa Sherpa. What peers did not do this? What we do is start challenging this corporate slave state. Talking about finding a great white. Echoes in the dark. Independence Day. The truth is out there in front of them. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of General Snobbery. This is episode two of our conversation about Independence Day Resurgence, the 2016 Roland Emmerich film. Um, In standard General Snobbery fashion, we intend to use episode two to go beyond the text a bit, to think about questions and to think about what this particular film says about our society. And the question that Matt and I have considered for today is, what's the deal with sequels? Why the heck are so many sequels coming out in Hollywood these days? So, Matt, do you have any thoughts on the matter? Well, I think that's a question that a lot of people are confronted with. If they don't necessarily think about it all the time, they're confronted with it in the sense that they're bombarded with it every every summer and every Christmas time when movie i mean okay they've made a sequel to paul blart mall cop i mean that's a good point you know like yeah i think and grown-ups and yeah and grown-ups. so two kevin james films <laughs> have gotten sequels not just like made in the first place yeah i think there used to be a a bit of a understanding where okay we're making a we're making a bad movie in order to make some money and make a couple of people laugh and then we're going to be done with that franchise now everything truly is a franchise yeah it becomes a franchise so let's see if we can amass a quick list of like sequels that come to mind of recent years so right now in the theaters we have independence day 2 we have finding dory um, we have X-Men Apocalypse. You know, that's part of the whole X-Men series. I think Captain, Captain America, America Civil yeah. War. Yeah. The third Captain America film is kind of on its last run. <laughs> um, I think there's even like Now You See Me Too, yes, which is like a Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie. No, he, Now You See Me Too is Jesse Eisenberg, uh, oh. and Woody Harrelson um, magician movie. Really? Yeah. Okay. But just in general, there's... The Marvel, the whole Marvel sort of universe is just one basically gigantic sequel. But I think everyone's confronted with this all the time. And ultimately, you ask the question, like, what's going on? What's going on in Hollywood? Do they have no original ideas or something like that? And I don't know. I guess my guess would be one reason sequels are popular is because you don't have to invent new characters. So you can, especially if it's a bad movie, just... (laughs) rewrite the script you already wrote right (laughs) Um, like independence day exactly and even just the way a sequel works and i'm talking about two movies i love here home alone one and home alone two are essentially the same movie and i've always wanted to watch them literally side by side start them at the same moment and i think you'd have like the iconic scene with the paint can down the stairwell i bet that happens at the same minute um, in both yeah. the first and the second movie. Yeah. And so that's just to show how easy maybe it can be to make a sequel. Because it's like you use the first as a formula. It's like when mm-hmm. a popular video game 
takes hold and then all of a sudden it's like gears of war four <laughs> and it's it's like the same game it's like oh wow now there's like a new way to curb stomp enemy like they pretty much use the same prototype that was revolutionary in the first one and so the sequel thing can become you know as you as you put it matt a franchise and i think a great example of this would be saw so the movie saw came out in early 2000s mm-hmm. um and it was really interesting and also really gruesome. And it was, like, one of the first films that was, like, People really, talked about it a lot. Yeah, it just extraordinarily gruesome and disturbing. Um, but it also had a plot. And it had, like, a story of these two guys and some background and stuff. And it was interesting. And then, you know, it did really well. And so, of course, it became Saw 2. And Saw 2 had no plot at all or no story. It was basically just, like, eight characters locked in, like, a house and gradually, like, killing each other. And as far as I've heard, I've I've never seen a Saw movie beyond the second. Every single film just kind of descends that slope a little more into just more disgusting imagery and less plot. Yeah. I think um, the idea of a sequel in some ways reminds me of a movie I actually have never seen but I'm aware of and I am pretty sure I would like it the movie Multiplicity have you ever seen this movie? Michael Keaton Michael Keaton yeah I saw it when I was younger okay I've heard it's a really good movie and essentially in the movie this man is cloned but every clone is like dumber I think hmm. um, it's just sort of like a dumbed down version of him and um, I feel like I feel like sequels can become like that in many ways. Just, That's a really good point. It's yeah. just it's a, like a replica of of itself, a copy of a copy of a copy. Of a copy. In the uh, in the words of Fight Club, <laughs> when Edward Norton has you know is this narrator is becoming more and more distant from his reality, and he says everything is a copy of a copy of a copy, which is a direct line from Chuck Palahniuk's novel. And oh, okay. Yeah, it has a great. It's a great way of putting like things are really distanced mm-hmm. um and so the obvious reason of why this is happening is money you know there's nothing revolutionary about that it's like okay finding nemo yeah super popular pixar movie that made a ton of money everyone loved dory everyone loves ellen degeneres now like mm-hmm. let's make finding dory and make pretty much the same storyline um but repackage it and make a lot more money the one of the a sequel I recently saw was Fast Seven, the seventh installment of <laughs> Fast and Furious. <laughs> I saw that about a year ago, and um, everything you'd expect. Now, the Fast and the Furious franchise, I think, is very interesting, not because of its merits, but because it it clearly was crashing and burning, and then they brought in <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson, who like resurrected it, yeah, which is kind of amazing. Did. But so Fast Seven, I saw the first Fast and Furious when it came out years ago, like in 2000 maybe, mm-hmm. and then I saw the seventh one. I didn't see any of them in between, but from watching the seventh one, I could tell that the multiple sequels that had happened after the first one just created a convoluted storyline, and because you don't want your favorite characters ever to die or go away, they just have to keep reinventing new ways for these characters to remain relevant, which is just a burdensome task. And so I think a bad sequel gives into that pressure rather than trying to create something new or that is probably more difficult. Right. The whole idea of creating something new is really an incredible burden for someone to, to deal with, with a sequel. Um, 
but otherwise it kind of just becomes a copy like if you have this movie that's done really well and there's much anticipation for the sequel how do you reinvent it without like distancing that crowd and making a whole like different movie i don't know it 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 seems like there's probably huge demand to basically remake that movie and make it seem different um every once in a while though a sequel will like really go around that and Mm -hmm. really like reinvent itself anew for some reason the one that i'm thinking of right now which has nothing to do with contemporary society because it was like the 1980s is indiana jones and the temple of doom okay yeah we uh obviously start with raiders of the lost ark which is this really you know hero's journey story we've got harrison ford as indiana jones this super likable hero archaeologist man who's you know tapping into webs of conspiracy involving nazis and like sacred artifacts and stuff and it's a whole lot of fun great steven spielberg stuff and then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, <laughs> Doom comes around, and everyone's probably like, "Oh yeah, another Indiana Jones adventure." Next thing that they know, they're like, "It's really know, dark." They're hundreds of meters below the surface of the Earth in some hidden chamber with it's like an Indian this, death cult. Yeah, this, this death cult that is literally pulling hearts from the chests of human beings and indiana jones turns evil because he is forced to drink this potion and he literally as he's like shirtless and sweating and like chanting in some foreign tongue starts whipping this asian child who is like his sidekick throughout the movie who is also the kid from the goonies who Mm -hmm. plays data short round short round that's the name of shorty so man they went really dark and steven spielberg has even said that he doesn't like that movie. And okay. He thinks that they went way too dark with it, but like, I love that movie, and it's probably my favorite Indiana Jones movie because it like really reinvented itself. And they probably were like, oh, everyone was freaked out with this. Let's remake Raiders of the Lost Ark and add Sean Connery. And so they pr- <laughs> they made Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is incredible fun too. And, mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. But that's a really good point. And Sean, you mentioned that to me, maybe like a couple weeks ago and I never thought about it like that because I've always sort of viewed those three Indiana Jones I think in the standard way which is like Raiders of the Lost Ark is probably the best but I have a ton of fun with um, Last Last Crusade Crusade. Mm -hmm. but that middle one (laughs) is just sort of dark (laughs) it's such an outlier yeah it is (laughs) they're you know eating monkey brains at one point and it's just Mm -hmm. a whole different world but you're right in that it it was bold in that it went and totally totally different direction one that didn't have the happy feel good feel that essentially last crusade ended with 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 literally a ride into the sunset yeah exactly and so sequels then maybe need to get a little darker in order to become new like even empire strikes back got darker than a new hope Mm. and lots of people consider that the best star wars movie ever made okay um I don't know if Two Towers got darker than Fellowship. Um, those all, it, it feels like one really long movie split yeah. into three parts in a way. But with an epic like that, um, this, the second one is nice because you don't have to introduce all the characters. A lot of the characters, like in the Two Towers, you get some new characters, but most of them are, they're already there, so you can sort of jump right into some different plot things. So with an epic like that, the middle one often has those merits, I think. So we have these weird sequels here in 2016, such as Independence Day, 
resurgence where 20 years after the first film, they decide to make another one. They get some of the same characters and they, it's pretty much the same movie Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Like there's new things, of course, but I mean, as much as I enjoyed watching Independence Day um, resurgence, I'll probably never watch it again. (laughs) And um, I don't think it's like original or anything. I mean, granted, we did have that good conversation about Bill Pullman's character and the African guy Mm -hmm. who I will always remember as people I love. But in terms of the story, it's just like, oh, the aliens are back and we have to fight them again. And here's some new like archetypal pilots Mm -hmm. to take them down. so it's not like a game changer. So back to the question of like, why are all these happening? Like, yeah, obviously there's the money thing, but I mean, do you think there's other factors at play? Like are Hollywood writers just out of ideas? Like, is that a possibility? Like there's no more ideas for good movies. (laughs) Like everything just stinks now. Yeah, you're right. I think people have talked about that facetiously and sort of joking. Like, I guess everyone's out of ideas, but it almost makes you wonder like maybe there is an idea threshold and we've actually just surpassed it because there are very few new things coming out I mean even even new movies new big blockbuster movies coming out that are not sequels are based on something um, or they're remakes I mean those are even kind of two different topics but um, yeah it's interesting why exactly they're happening I don't know. With Independence Day Resurgence, when I heard it was coming out, I I was actually impressed when I heard the storyline, which I think we mentioned, um, the I think, Sean, in your description in episode one about Independence Day, um, you sort of explained the plot, which is as the aliens were being defeated in the war of 1996, they sent a distress call to their home planet or whatever, and now they're back for revenge. Um, and so while it's also a sequel, that one actually, they're able to use a little bit of like real time as part of the storyline, which a lot of them don't. They just, I feel like are just putting on a sequel for, for the sake of doing it. Yeah. But I have a really good friend who has an interesting theory on, um, I guess why so many sequels and bad movies are coming out. Uh, she thinks it has to do with how good the writing is in television these days, that a lot of the best story writers, the best writers for the screen, are flocking to television because, you know, I'd imagine it has better job security because, you know, you can write episodes for full seasons Mm -hmm. and then maybe even beyond that instead of just, like, you know, one movie at a time or something. Um, That's a really good point. Yeah, because, I mean... We're the in what the golden era of TV, yeah. or the new golden age of television. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to make so many people are watching television with streaming services like HBO Go and uh, Netflix and mm-hmm. Hulu and Amazon Prime now that like, I mean, the competition is really fierce yeah. to make a good show. So there has to be good, clever writing or people probably aren't going to tune in quite as much. Um, but that's not the case with movies. People don't really <laughs> care as much. You're right. They just go to movies and they're like, yeah, whatever. It could be a dumb movie. It's just two hours of my life. I can eat popcorn and tune mm-hmm. out during that instead of like wanting to get involved over the course <laughs> of, you know, like many hours of a saga-like season. Yeah, which is really kind of amazing in terms of 
people's standards, I think, because now it does seem that the TV standard is so high. I mean, if you yeah. just think of just a couple shows in the past number of years that have been critically acclaimed, I mean, something like a Breaking Bad, where every episode was film quality. I mean, and now that's not even... You don't even need to mention that now. That's like expected or Mad Men that like every episode is basically going to just seem like a movie. Yeah. But, yeah. We go back even to like The Wire mm-hmm. uh, 2002 to 2006. Yeah. I believe that was a real game changer because it had novelistic ambitions. You know, like each season felt kind of like a novel mm-hmm. in a way in terms of the development of plot and character. And um, that's a lot harder in a two hour block of time than like a you know 12 hour block of time yeah and I think something that amazes me <laughs> kind of makes me laugh is how many of these movies like sequels <laughs> like that come out these big blockbusters that p- pretty much get um, a lot of revenue but very low critical acclaim how many people constantly are telling me how good this movie was <laughs> and how I need to see it yeah. and then it turns out they're not good movies. They're just expensive and big budget and whatnot. You know, it, it's a little harder to develop characters over the course of two hours the way you can over the course of several seasons. And so it almost makes me wonder, like, well, what then should a movie try and do? You know, you have a two-hour limit. Right. Game of Thrones has ten hours, you know, to a develop. Season. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. No, that's a great question because, you know, I'd, I'd imagine a lot of you listeners have seen Breaking Bad and even if you haven't, you'd probably recognize Walter White, played by Brian Cranston. And he starts off as a high school chemistry teacher in the first episode of the first season. And within a season or two, he's become like a notorious um, creator of methamphetamine <laughs> because he's such a brilliant chemist. And we have an incredible character arc over the course of uh, five seasons or kind of six seasons because mm-hmm. I think they split the fifth into two. Um, And Vince Gilligan, the creator of that show, said that his intention was to make the protagonist become the antagonist. So it was this whole idea of, like, change is like a chemical reaction. Like, this change is kind of a perpetual theme throughout the show. And, man, I've watched that series twice. And it is remarkable to watch the character change in Walter White and how well-deserved it is and how well-paced it is. And granted, they had so much time. So if you think of, like, Walter White's character arc from, you know, high school chemistry teacher to notorious meth dealer, and you think of trying to squeeze that into two hours, it would be such a convoluted mess. There's no way it could possibly work. So that ambition has to be for a show. And as you just mentioned, Matt, like, the ambition for uh, a film must be distinct. It must be different. So, like, what should it be, or what is it? Yeah, I don't know. That's um, that's a good point. Because a character can change in a film, like, yeah. and probably should. It's like a real fast story, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, two hours is one of the fastest ways we can receive a story. Um, like, some classic stories where a character undergoes a change. Um, anything come to mind? Um one for me is uh, the Truman Show. The Truman Show. Yeah. Yeah, we see Truman really becoming more aware of his surroundings mm-hmm. throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Another movie where I think you can see some kind of change is Jaws. 
actually in the movie Jaws. In the um, character of uh, in the character Brody. Of Brody, yeah. yeah. Um, this is I, I recently on saw this picture on Instagram that made me laugh, and it was um, it had the three sort of main characters from Jaws that we see on the Orca boat for the final sequences of the movie, and it's um, Quint, um, Brody, and what's Richard Dreyfus's? I'd oh, like to go, do um, my Hooper. Hooper, yeah. yeah. Uh, like to do my Richard Dreyfus shout out. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I might do that from now on. Just try my best, if at all possible, to give a shout out to Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> um, and so I, I don't know why I'm telling this story, actually. I hope you like it, listener. And I saw this picture <laughs> on Instagram and it said, Merry Quintmas to every Brody and a Hooper New Year. And it just really made me laugh that someone took the time to make three holiday puns using the names of these characters from Jaws. But over the course of the movie Jaws, you see, I think, character development in Quint, uh, I'm sorry, in Brody and Hooper as well. Quint is the old fisherman, if you remember, and so he's he's kind of old and grizzled, and he's not going anywhere in terms of character development. But mm-hmm. you do see how he became how he is through the telling of the story of the USS Indianapolis that he shares when they're on the boat. And apparently the actors were actually drunk during that scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so what change in character do you see in Brody? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. I, I, I think there's a certain sense of timidness you see with him. Clearly he's afraid of the water. Um, yeah, that's and true. And that at least pro- provides some depth. And they, Steven Spielberg doesn't do it in such a dramatic way. We're, like, playing, like, some some really melancholy like opera music you see him staring at the water you just know that he's afraid of the water and I guess it's something he has to kind of overcome um yeah I mean another Spielberg film where a character changes is Jurassic Park where uh Dr. Alan Grant makes it very clear in his first scene that he does not like children that's at all and he is very annoyed with children he even says that they smell and that's (laughs) one of the reasons he doesn't like them that's right Babies have a smell. (laughs) Some of them smell. Some of them smell. (laughs) And, of course, that movie, the plot then forces him to basically take care of two children. And, you know, he becomes a father figure for them because it's not really clear where their father is anyways. John Hammond is their grandpa, Mm -hmm. but their father is not present. But Grant, you know, learns to take care of them and really watch after them and be a protector. So he has a character change. Um, Yeah. There was another movie that came to mind. Um, well, maybe just real quick, a couple things, if you don't mind, if I add to Jurassic Park. Um, yeah. With where's the where are these kids, uh, where's their father? Um, we don't know, but at least the movie didn't feel the pressure to to, to make their parents getting a divorce for the sake of sympathy, <laughs> like that movie Jurassic World did. <laughs> that, that Alec Trevelyan directed. <laughs> 006. <laughs> Played by Sean Bean. Sean Bean. (laughs) Sean Bean, before he was known. Um, And, yeah, also, Dr. Alan Grant in Jurassic Park essentially threatens to slice open the kid's stomach in the opening sequence. That's true. He kind of, he doesn't actually threaten him, but he does... He does basically say that a raptor claw could do... Yeah. Could do that. Yeah. (laughs) We think about movies like Pulp Fiction, where... Samuel L. Jackson's character of Jules undergoes a very 
profound change fairly early in the movie, actually, and a lot of the movie is about John Travolta's character um, trying to deal with that change because they're kind of, they're bros, like they're hitmen together, and all of a sudden Samuel Jackson wants out because he says he had some sort of religious experience. And it's really the change in character that makes us connected to character because otherwise they're just you know a type like the bro or the sidekick or the hero or something (laughs) exactly a two-dimensional stock yeah two-dimensional stock and it's the change that you know is is what makes them round and three-dimensional makes us connect to them and in a lot of like um kind of mainstream movies the change happens in a really cliche kind of way like they'll be the same kind of character throughout and then like the big moment they'll like like let's say you have like a real cocky guy and he doesn't have any concern for other people and there's this other character next to him like come on Brant like why don't you think about us sometimes and he's like I only I only think about myself in this world and then like he is you know real cocky and oh then, we get it this guy's a jerk <laughs> and all of a sudden like two thirds of the way through the movie he has like a drastic change of heart and like saves the day and saves these other characters and demonstrates that you know he has a heart too and they're like, Brent, Brent, what came over you? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> yeah. I guess the sun yeah. just rises sometimes. <laughs> and like, then all of a sudden he's different. And that doesn't make us really connect to a character. That's just like one stock character all of a sudden becoming a slightly different stock character. <laughs> so, yeah. so basically for a film to succeed, I think like for you know a lasting kind of way, we need a change in a central character and that change needs to be like deserved and not just you know strapped on because that's you know what you learn in screenwriting 101 (laughs) that a character needs to change but like what makes this character change like you know Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction has a near-death experience that's what makes him change and he really reevaluates his life yeah I think um anyone who's experienced any kind of like heavy, deep emotion in their life, which is everyone, including our listener, um, one listener, I think knows, can see a movie and realize that the way that those are often shown in movies or in movies that are not great or that are two-dimensional, movies like that portray these emotional, these deeply emotional experiences as like so easy, (laughs) like easy to recognize, easy to deal with and easy to overcome. But in reality, it's, I I like the phrase, like the truth is stranger than fiction. And I feel like that's true in many ways. Like, okay, so let me just think of uh, Nicholas Sparks real quick, the author. Um, He writes these love stories. Did he write the notebook? He wrote the notebook. yeah. Yeah. And, I haven't read any of his books. I've seen some of the movies based on those books, but I love, I've read this article where it just showed that every one of the stories is the exact same, <laughs> which is that <laughs> two young lovers fall in love. There's some obstacle in the way. They overcome the obstacle happily ever after. So that's not the way life works. And so it's hard to look at those characters and feel any sort of resounding or kind of, um, any kind of connection that remains beyond the credits. I mean, it just sort of, it's like, okay, well, I guess, yeah, whatever. They're two old people now living in a nursing home. Like, I'm not going to go back and say, gosh, this movie's ever new every time I watch it. Yeah, and so if we have this formula in this these novels, I mean, 
we can see formulas all over the place. Like a lot of big time writers um, kind of use this formula, like James Patterson and um, Dan Brown. Dan Brown, I think, is maybe <laughs> a little better than James Patterson because mm-hmm. he does not come out with one book a month. He comes out with like one book every three years, and it seems a little well thought out, mm-hmm. but it's still pretty formulaic. Um, and they're kind of like pop novels that sell, you know, like uh, Daniel Steele just has book after book after book, and it's the same story over and over again um, with, you know, different names <laughs> inserted, <laughs> basically. Um, but people just buy and buy and buy, and, you know, we think of pop songs. I have a, another really good friend, and I was telling her about this kind of theme that's developing in our podcast of, like, this recycled material, and she she said like pop songs and I was like wow I never thought about that but it's true like pop songs often use the exact same chord progressions like one after the other after the other and the same type of melody and the same type of song structure you know this three minute thing where you have a couple verses and then you build up to a little bridge and then a, a catchy chorus and then maybe a solo or something like it all follows a formula because that sells and that's I guess the whole thing behind a sequel is that you bring back this formula that worked once and you resurrect it or make it resurge. And <laughs> then, <laughs> then all of a sudden, like, hopefully that happens again. Um, just time after time after time. Um, but if we're in an age right now where we have way more sequels than original films, that's compromising the creative component of film which is the artistic component of film you know if you have you know 10 different versions of independence day it's tough to really argue for the artistic merit of film but you know if you have like spotlight or Mm -hmm. um maybe a richard linklater or paul thomas anderson movie like you can really easily argue for the artistic nature of film because it does something it's like creating a reaction that's not just like being overwhelmed with explosions and CGI aliens and like Bill Pullman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a, a number of the <laughs> oh, Bill Pullman, um, <laughs> such a good. We could we could even talk more about Bill Pullman. Yeah, we probably should. We didn't <laughs> talk about him enough. He was great. He was. And speaking of Independence Day, um, I think the very end of the movie was the hardest sell I've ever seen, or hardest promotion for the fact that they're going to make more another sequel they, they basically and yeah. it was brackish or as sean calls him brackish <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a uh, tune into part one of independence day resurgence for that joke to make full sense right um it was basically brackish in the end of the movie screaming into the camera there will be a third independence day <laughs> right. like, he basically he might as well have just said that yeah pretty much pretty much we mentioned that there was another form of intelligent life revealed and basically they set it up that them and the United States are going to partner to destroy this alien species once and for all, and they're going to travel into the deep recesses of space in order to do so. <laughs> That's right. I forgot yeah, about that detail. That is that exactly was... what the third movie will be. Mm-hmm. However, if this movie makes no money, which it's doing so far, yeah. then there won't be a third, which is so interesting. That remind- that Go ahead. Clearly, 20th Century Fox, the distributor of this film, thought like... There's one. There's literally no way this film will fail, so we'll set it up for a sequel and get everyone excited. And now it's kind of failing. Yeah, and like 
What are they doing? That reminds me a lot of the movie Robin Hood, directed by Ridley Scott, who we have talked about because in our Martian <laughs> episodes, the en- literally the end of that movie was this sort of postscript, and it was like cursive because it was Robin Hood and supposed to sort of whatever. I'm not going to go into the aesthetics of that movie more than I already have, but I want to say the final like postscript of that movie was, and so the legend begins. So like literally saying like, this is part one of many parts. <laughs> and then that movie did so terribly that they never, <laughs> never, bring it back. never brought it back, which is an, a movie that could have had sequels that I wish had was the movie Master and Commander, mm. also starring Russell Crowe, directed by Peter Weir, who yeah. also directed The Truman Show. Yes. That movie, um, and that movie came out in 2003, the same year as Return of the King, and it was nominated for almost as many Academy Awards as Return of the King, but Return of the King basically won them all. I think something about a couple of the directors, Sean mentioned, like Paul Thomas Anderson and Richard Linklater, One thing about movies that guys like those do uh, is that often when I have finished watching a movie, I I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to feel since I'm talking a lot about emotions tonight. Um, But our one listener is fine with that, I'm sure. Um, But a bad movie will tell you what you should feel, and it will almost tell it to you, like, feel this now, feel this now, and you're going to feel a little sad for a little bit, but now feel happy. But, like, I think a good movie understands the complexity of life, and so you sort of end it like, I don't know how I feel about this scene or sequence or person, and to go back to Breaking Bad, like, I sometimes wonder, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about Walter White, like, like oh, nice, he's the good guy. And then it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> he's a terrible person. You know, yeah. like, what am I supposed to feel with him? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is kind of a support of the artistic nature of it. And I also feel respected as an audience member that the directors and producers are willing to say kind of, okay, audience, now you have the intelligence to kind of parse through this a little bit rather than just being sold the same sort of like, rom-com storyline every you know christmas and valentine's day right right that's that's one fascinating thing that i'm discovering is that um these big big distribution and production companies seem to have the perception that the (laughs) at least the american population and maybe the global population is really stupid yeah (laughs) and that like they don't see through this stuff and that they don't question like these formulaic um, reprises of earlier films, and that they prefer that like these kind of dumb movies over movies that actually propel thought, like a a Linklater film or a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um, and so, I mean, let's say you know we put ourselves in the mind of an amateur filmmaker. And this amateur filmmaker, you know, really wants to, like, make a really striking film, something that will actually have an impact on an audience, but, you know, who's going to fund that kind of film? (laughs) Um, Maybe that film needs a high budget, too, Mm -hmm. but not that many people are going to see it. So, I mean, I guess 
by the fact that, that would be my conclusion maybe the big companies are right that like a lot more people are drawn toward more mindless films because maybe that's how a lot more people relate to films because you know they want to go as an escape and as entertainment as like the one time in the week where they'll get a giant coke and popcorn <laughs> and like maybe a hot dog and just like kick back and like literally forget about the world outside the theater and they'd rather not like think during that time um but i i really wish that these production companies and these distri- distribution companies um would not have that view of humanity because they have so much power in creating thought and creating conversation. Like if they produce a film that has a gay um, couple at the, at the helm, that's going to be a big conversation. You know, that was proven by Brokeback Mountain. Like everyone was talking about Brokeback Mountain when it came out. Um, And that was an important conversation for the culture to have and probably healing in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because a lot of people were really upset and maybe they were able to let go of it. Um, But what's the incentive to go for that at this point? If you know, no big company is going to fund you, um, they're going to prefer kind of a more formulaic approach because they think people only see the formulaic stuff. They don't see the stuff that makes them question their reality, which is what, art does Mm -hmm. like that's really the role of art is to make us kind of confront the borders of our reality the borders of what we believe to be true and then open them and expand them into new possibilities and a great film can do that maybe i mean I, i won't compare it to other artistic mediums like painting and you know writing and music but a great film can have great writing great music and great like um, filming mm-hmm. so you have multiple forms of art brought together and it can really make a human being transcend him or herself but when that's not when there's no money attached to that um, you know what's the incentive for a brilliant young screenwriter a brilliant young director mm-hmm. to go for that and not just you know take the big budget deal and get a couple million dollars to direct a sequel to Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, you brought up a number of things to consider there. The moral obligations of these big movie production companies. um, Because like you said, they, movies as an art form are a very, very significant part of culture. And so they, like you said, are, can push the boundaries of conversation and they're going to be conversation pieces. So they could do a lot. Um, but there is this sense of don't make the audience think, just feed them almost like feed the masses kind of sense. And so every year we put out five blockbusters that are the same movie essentially. (laughs) And, and so then we just do sequels because then that's easy. I think if I had to give a suggestion to these big, or a plea, I would say, to these big Hollywood production companies, I would say maybe just maybe just hire one screenwriter. Like, maybe just start there. Like, yeah. instead of having multiple, multiple people, maybe just put the trust in one person to or create two, some... Two people yeah. max. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But your um, Independence Day Resurgence had five. 
And those are the five, five screenwriters. People, five screenwriters and five story by five people. So <laughs> essentially, let's just go with the screenwriters. Those are the ones credited. Who knows how many wrote a line or, you know, were consulted. And so where's the vision then? I mean, it, it would take a very disciplined director to sort of have a vision and lead the whole story in such a way that it there is an arc and it tells this narrative that is significant and not just a, you know, a blockbuster. So, Sean, a minute ago you mentioned kind of a good movie being able to have good story, good music, good visuals, things like that. And I mentioned it already, but The Truman Show comes to mind for me in that regard because it has great music, great visuals, story, whatnot. I showed that um, movie to my students, and I told them I told them they should watch that movie once a year. And yeah. that's just sort of how much merit I place on that movie is one where it's always new, and it's, it's a story about self-realization in many ways, and I think we could all use right. a little bit of that. <laughs> if I might snob right now. Um, <laughs> but it also, I think, is brilliantly funny in how it uses cameras because the premise of the movie The Truman Show is that Truman, Truman's whole life is on film. He was born, and he's part of this TV show, and so there are creative ways to film Truman. And it, it, um, it's a slight homage to filmmaking, I think, and it's also just very creative and shows I think the good minds that were behind the making of that film who which was directed as I think I mentioned by Peter Weir yeah there's there's many movies that come to mind when I think of movies that grow each time I see them or movies that um, at least continue to expand my perception or um, kind of take on a new meaning each time I watch them and you know related to my life at the time and you know if we think about great novels and stuff that's kind of the way people tend to describe them like yeah I read this novel when I was a teenager and it was amazing and then I read it again in my 30s and it was like I was reading a whole new book like it applied to my life in a completely different way and you know the in terms of film the Truman Show is definitely one of those for me as well so is Fight Club. Like mm-hmm. every time I see Fight Club, I can get some new meaning out of that, some new reflection about things that I take for granted because it's such a harsh punch to the face. Then there's other movies that like are interesting for like two times, and oh, then yeah, all of a sudden yeah. like they're not interesting anymore. <laughs> like uh-huh. it kind of reach a, reaches a limit of it. Like uh, the usual spus- the usual suspects. Interesting is a really interesting film directed by uh, Brian Singer and starring Kevin Spacey. And it's kind of a mind F from the first time you see it. Like, it's totally, you know, unexpected what happens. And then you can watch it again and kind of, like, pick up more clues. But then after that, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I kind of got it. Um, (laughs) Okay. And, and, you know, then you get something like The Matrix, which is another one that gets at, like, kind of more... um, it, it it almost becomes more real each time I see it. It's like, wow, you know, at first I thought this was just this fable, and, like, now I see it as actually emblematic of, you know, reality in our digital age, and you can apply it so many different directions. So a really great film that really invites multiple viewings, like, through time, a great film that will last through time, really seems like it needs to be diverse enough in its implications to apply to 
future generations, to apply to things yet to come, to get at something more universal and eternal about existence. And, you know, if we think of The Matrix and The Truman Show, the central question of both of those films is, like, what is the nature of being? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They tackle the big question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a big philosophical question that we we should ask more. Yeah. Yeah, and those two movies are so different. Oh, yeah. They are so different. so different, and yet they have a similar, like, core. Yeah, and I feel satisfied every time I watch those. And likewise, for The Matrix, I probably thought it was just cool, like, the first couple times I saw it. Which, by the way, that movie's, like, 17 years old. It came out in 99. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, talk about a movie that you would think would be dated, especially since it's so technocentric and technology's light years beyond where it was then. But it's still so relevant. And it it gets better every time, too. It's like yeah. a willingness to... I don't know. Maybe that would be it. Maybe that's maybe that's one reason why the sequel, the whole sequel game, is just kind of annoying, is because it's just a repurposing and a repackaging, and the original package never asked the question of being anyway. <laughs> and, and, you know, to have a talk like this, it probably does sound quite snobbish, like, well, lucky you, you podcast guys, like, <laughs> you must think you're cool, because you're with talking your about Samson it. Meteor mics. Which is a very warm-sounding mic. Yeah, we support them. We do. Um, yeah, you can just snob about the questions of being, but, um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it'd be nice if movies opened that up to the rest of the viewership, and I don't know how you could really make a question about being in a Captain America movie, but I'll tell you what, that that movie certainly never gives you the impression that the good guys are actually going to lose. Like, you know, so so you just know what's going to happen. Or do we know what's going to happen next? How can we foretell where a snob may lead? Indeed, as you perceive, dear listener, with your intelligent and informed knack for detail, you certainly recognize that this conversation is far from over. Join us next week when we travel beyond the beyond into territories new and exciting, territories centered around the existential question, what does it mean to be? In the meantime, we'd be most humbled if you would leave us a good review on iTunes that these snobs may become more searchable and visible in the realm of podcast land. And if you're feeling extra loving, you can even like our Facebook page, General Snobbery Podcast. Our sincerest gratitude, dear listener, for joining us. May we all be snobbing the whole way home. Oh.